A huge proportion of the remaining pay gap is basically because of babies. If they make the World Cup roster, female players receive 44% of what their male counterparts earn. It's not just that we should do it for moral reasons. Uh, it just seems to me obvious that there are overwhelming practical reasons to address these problems. Documents reportedly showing Oscar winner Jennifer Lawrence and co-star Amy Adams reportedly earning less than their male co-stars on American Hustle, and a female executive at Sony making significantly less than her male counterpart. Yeah. No power pose will make equality for women in economics possible. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. An honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm Stephanie Irvin. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. You want to hear some crazy stats? Yes. <laughs> Tell me some crazy stats. In some occupations, women collectively are receiving billions less than they would with equal pay. So, for instance, women working as physicians and surgeons are paid $19 billion less annually wow. than if they were paid the same as men in that occupation. What the fuck? Bil $19 billion. Yeah. Well, what's $19 billion between friends, after all? <laughs> <laughs> or so there was a McKinsey report done not too long ago that looked at sort of the gender pay gap and reported that more equal pay in the workforce would increase the gross domestic product of the global economy by 26% by 2025. Yeah, that's a shocking amount. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, it, again, coming back to one of the lies of neoliberalism, that as wages go up, the economy will be harmed. But on the contrary, the more money we pay people, the more they consume, the more they consume, the more gets made, the more money people have, the more capacity they have to improve their lives. All of this is a positive feedback loop effect that benefits largely everyone except, in this case, giant insurance companies and healthcare executives. So they are shocking numbers, but they are obvious when you zoom out and look at the underlying dynamics. I mean, these are just crazy. An October 2012 study by the American Association of University Women found that over the course of a 35-year career, an American woman with a college degree will make about 1.2 million less than a man with the same education. That is remarkable. We are collectively losing out on our billions. <laughs> it makes me so mad. It makes me so mad. You know, women make currently make up 70% of Medicaid recipients, 80% of welfare recipients, increasing women's workplace participation, as we do in Sweden, could add 5.1 million women to the workforce in America. You know, it's just it just highlights that exactly what you just said, which is we could be growing our economy by just including the people yeah. who are already here. Yeah a little bit more, right. making their participation not just as consumers or even as workers, but their participation as employers, as entrepreneurs, right. as inventors, and as leaders of our government, yeah. a little bit easier, we would probably all be better off. Yeah, super true. And again, you know, the pushback is always, well, we can't afford it or, you know, whatever. And these things are just not true. The country spent a trillion dollars last year in stock buybacks. If you devoted even 10 or 20% of that number to 
fixing these problems. Again, you know, a few rich people would be slightly less rich, but it would immeasurably improve the lives of millions of people and grow the economy faster. So in this episode, we get to talk to uh, a really remarkable woman, Professor Julie Nelson, who uh, is an economics professor at University of Massachusetts and who specializes in both economics and feminism. Uh, to be clear, not things that have gone super well together for a long time <laughs> because of the way in which the economics profession has both treated women and contributed to things like the pay equity gap that we have in this country. But uh, Julie is a super thoughtful person and in particular has written some really interesting things about the way in which the so-called scientific nature of economics is really a sham. What at Civic Ventures we love to call really a protection racket for rich people in many ways. Um, and she's written really beautifully about that. Um, so it uh, should be really fun to talk to her today. Hi, Julie. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. Thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us. We're so excited to talk so to you. So excited. I'm Julie Nelson. I'm a professor of economics at University of Massachusetts, Boston. So I want to pick on one of the neoliberal myths, which is people are paid what they're worth. And we know that today in America, on average, women are paid about 80% of what men make in general. So are women are women making what they're worth in that scenario? Is there any evidence that supports that? Um, there's a number of reasons to believe that there's still a whole lot of unfairness and sort of male-directed bias um, that we're not at a fair area yet. And um, there's the obvious you know, sexism that's still around. Uh, the Me Too movement brought up issues of, of sexual harassment that still goes on. And even if women in the workplace aren't being harassed, they're still often taken less seriously. You know, something they say doesn't actually exist until a man says it. There's a feeling that you know, women don't belong in leadership. All of those sorts of attitudes are still around in some places. We've made progress. Women used to make about 60% as much as men for full-time work back in the early 70s. So there's some progress, but, but not very far. But there's a couple of other things that are more subtle, but I think becoming increasingly important in explaining the wage gap besides the obvious sexism. Mm -hmm. And these things are more systematic and also, again, go back to that question about what economics has been teaching us. Economics has been teaching us that the people in, in the commerce, in the economy, workers, are individual, rational, autonomous beings, uh, economic man. And economic man doesn't have any dependence. Economic man doesn't have any family care responsibilities. Right. So we have this whole norm in a lot of the workforce um, that you should be able to work into the evening. You should be able to travel, you know, at a moment's notice, uh, do overtime anytime, right? Um, all of which, you know, those are killer demands if you've you're, you've also taken care of children or elderly parents or anyone else. Joan C. Williams uh, calls this the ideal worker norm, and it's still very present. You know, men are taking on more family responsibilities than they used to, uh, but since women still disproportionately do that. Uh, this certainly leads to you know, women being taken less seriously in the workplace, uh, getting fewer promotions because they're not taken as serious workers. And it's not like somebody decreed. This, this would be like the you know, bedtime is 9 o'clock. You know, the work week is 40 hours, right? right. It's the same kind of statement. Right. <laughs> it's not dictated in stone. You know, the 40-hour work week was based around you know just... mostly male workers and no household responsibilities. We can think differently. We don't have to stay yeah. with that. The other thing about gender pay equity is the differences between um, 
what's paid for sort of stereotypically male jobs and stereotypically female jobs. Right. Um, jobs that involve what we think of as, you know, caring labor, things like nursing, teaching, uh, child care, um, tend to be mostly filled by women and are often paid less and often people feel like they should be paid less. Right. Um, for example, in, in economics, there's, a, there's the argument that CEOs should be incentivized with stock options to do things on behalf of their shareholders, right? To get, you can't get CEOs to, be, to act on behalf of their shareholders unless you pay them you know, large amounts of money. But there's a couple of articles that have been published in regular economics journals about how to get the best nurses. And these articles argue that to get the best nurses, you have to pay them low because that's, that's the way you make sure only altruists take the jobs. Right. <laughs> unbelievable. That is unbelievable. unbelievable, right? Because like, like nurses don't have to eat, right? And right now, childcare workers in the U.S. make about the same as parking lot attendants. Okay, you know the future of you know humanity is in the hands of people who are making as much uh, for watching kids as they could for watching parked cars. So that whole equity across occupations uh, still remains to be addressed. Yeah, right? another one of my favorites is that you allude to here is that. When it comes to rich people, they need massive incentives to do the right thing, that tax cuts and huge salaries uh, yeah. and stock options. But poor people, low-wage workers, need to be incentivized with pain, pain <laughs> with <exactly>. fear, <laughs> right? That right. low wages is the way to keep low-wage workers hard at work because if you raise the wages, well, then won't they slack off? Won't they feel... You know, they'll get lazy and soft if we pay them more. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's just a fascinating double standard um, yeah. that that sort of infects both our policy and our culture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the carrots are for the rich and the sticks are for the poor. Right. Exactly. Mm. What do you yep. think of some of the ideas that exist in other countries, like the legislation Iceland passed a couple years ago about um, transparency and pay trying to make sure corporations are actually held accountable or have to get certified to represent that they're paying men and women equally in the workplace. What do you think of approaches like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, a lot of Europe, not just Iceland, but a lot of Europe and particularly Scandinavia and Iceland are, are way ahead in um, thinking about how to actually uh, get to uh, gender equity, um, how to break some of those habits of thought and um, you know, create some new patterns for uh, employers uh, and for for workers. Any specific ideas that are your favorites, or you think would bend the needle the furthest or the fastest? Um, I think just, you know, like just reporting on wages is a good step. Um, I mean, one of the problems has been issues of transparency. Uh, oftentimes, uh, women and minorities don't even know they're being underpaid because it's all kept very hush hush. Right. right. So transparency is is one one part of it. There are certainly some other you know, policies at, at the business and government level in terms of evaluation of what used to have been called comparable worth, uh, got going in Australia, never got going so much here, um, and things like legislation for people with family responsibilities, that is, you know, leaves and job protection and these kinds of things. Not only Europe, Canada is way ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple states. I mean, California now has paid family leave. But still, I mean, a lot of workers in the U.S. don't even have sick leave, you know, much less uh, family leave, much less paid family leave. That's outrageous. Yeah. So where do you think we start on this? Obviously, we do a lot of work here at Civic Ventures around narrative shift and attacking the sort of root, to your point, of homo economicus and um, 
everything that's wrong about what they say about the nature of people. But what else can we do? Should we start with regulation? Should we start with changing the narrative? Should we just expect and ask our our corporations to be (laughs) responsible on their own, to voluntarily move? Should we start with, you know, really embrace these culture change things? Should we do it all all at once? Well, my sense is that for a lot of big problems, uh, I would put climate change up there with with gender equity as well. It really has to be all hands on deck. That yeah. is, it's not going to just be the government doing it. It's not going to be just the corporations doing it. It's not going to be just, you know, unions doing it. It really, or just the media. No one part is is going to be able to do it on their own. Because we really are talking about, you know, shifts in uh, the way people perceive the world that they're in, perceive the whole economy, perceive uh, gender relations. So those are some pretty big shifts. Um, in, in regards to the economy, though, you have to realize that I think a lot of you know, the, the rise of neoliberalism has happened over the last you know few decades. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the, the U.S. economy was not always like this. <laughs> right. I take a lot of inspiration from the people in the, in the progressive era, back when the, you know, the robber barons were, you know, making big piles of money. And the uh, you know the workers were starting to see what was going on in in Europe with you know uh, organizing and and communism and socialism, and uh, and the U.S. you know kind of worked it out. It worked better for like you know white men than women and minorities at the time. The deals they put through, still social security, workers' comp, all of these things. I mean, it were a way to make uh, the economic system work for everybody. And of course, you know some people didn't like it because it was too much government. Uh, some people didn't like it because it was too you know. Too little sharing uh, was still capitalism, but it actually made a workable system, and so we got to get that ground back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and further. Well, listen, this has been a fascinating conversation. So Thank great. you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. Super great talking fun. with you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 So you may think that this problem isn't actually as prevalent or as bad as it sounds. I feel like I see a lot of people who are like, I've never experienced pay inequity or seen other people who are. I don't know any of these people. This is something that maybe happens to celebrities. It doesn't happen in day-to-day life. And I get that. But there's a recent example that actually just happened here in our own backyard in Seattle that is really stunning everyone who thought that we were past this issue. Hi, my name is Sarah Lebovitz. I'm a producer here on Pitchfork Economics. And I got the chance to sit down with the person who experienced that pay inequity. Her name is Emily Schwing, and she's a reporter. And it all started when she was hired by the Northwest News Network a couple of years ago. My name is Emily Schwing, and I'm a public radio reporter and producer. I'm currently on assignment in Alaska. So let's see what happened to me. Um, Well, I got this job in 2016, and I was really excited about it. And then I think it was like a year or so. I waited about a year to ask for a raise because I felt like that was kind of standard procedure. Like, you, you know, do your job for a year and then ask for more money. So I asked for the median income for a Washington state resident, which at the time was $57,000 and change. I just thought it was a really fair ask because they had asked me to move to Washington state 
And I figured if you want me to live in Washington state and work for you, then you can pay me what the average Washington state resident makes. But our board member said no, which kind of surprised me because I didn't feel like I was asking for too much. I, I felt like I was being really fair and not greedy. So that's when I went on a state website um, and I found out what my colleagues were making. And it turns out that my male colleagues were making closer to $30,000 more. So tens of thousands of dollars more. It was somewhere in the high 20s um, than me or my other female colleague. And so that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to make a real ask. And so I asked for like $20,000 more and that would have still put me under what the men were making, but I felt like it would put me a lot closer in terms of the pay gap to what I felt like I was worth. And I never even got a response on that second request. As far as I know, it was just like crickets. Um, and so then I just kept asking and nobody would really say anything, but then it was recommended to me that I get a job offer from somewhere else. So I did, and that was for $12,000 more than what I was making. So I took that to the people who make decisions on what I'm going to make. And I said, Hey, I have a job offer. Here's my letter. Here's what they want to pay me. And they told me, um, no, we can't raise your salary that much. And I said, okay, well, what can you raise my salary to? And they said, we can give you $4,000. And this was like the following year. So we're now into January of 2018. And I said, okay, well, I will take the $4,000 and stick around for one year with the understanding and the agreement that you guys will address this pay gap and um, do something about it because it had been going on for much longer than I was with the network, like more than a decade, really. So then January of 2019, this year rolled around and I went down to Pullman, Washington and talked with my managers and I said, hey, I'm, you know why I'm here. I would like a raise and I would like to make what my male colleagues are making. And they were like, well, what are your male colleagues making? And I said, in the upper 70s. And um, it, I was in the room with two men and one of the men just kind of like winced. Like I had like thrown a snowball <laughs> at him or something. He was like, ooh, I, we can't do that. And I was like, well, if you can do it for him, you could do it for me. And um, they were just like, no, we're, we're not going to be able to get you a raise. And I said, you're not going to be able to get me a raise at all. And they said, no, but you know what you should do? You should get a job offer. <laughs> and I was like, but I already did that. And so right. for me, it just got to the point where it was like, okay, you guys aren't really going to do anything about this. Like we've all acknowledged that there's a problem. We've had this conversation a million times. I've talked to every single one of our board members. Me and my female colleague went around to all of our board members last year and had conversations with them. And I just felt like this was not new information, but there was just a lot of like, oh yeah, we should address that. Oh yeah, we'll see what we can do. And then the, it just you know, that can just kept getting kicked down the road. So that's kind of what happened. And how much were you making? When I first started, the state website says I was making 51400 And let's be honest, like that's not a lot of money. So a lot of what I was doing to sort of supplement that income was freelancing. And I just felt like, why do I have to spin my wheel so hard and get all these side gigs to make the same amount of money that my male colleagues are making and they just have to do one job. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the other reason that I decided that I wanted to make this sort of official on my own terms was the announcement about my leaving the network went out and it said something along the lines of, Emily Schwing has done great work. And then it listed out all of these stories that I've reported recently. And now she's going to Alaska to be with her husband, um, which is fantastic. I love my husband and I like Alaska, but that's not why I quit my job. So um, I'm not really the housewife type. And it just bothered me that we could like sort of distill all of this down so easily into like, oh, she's just going to spend more time with family, you know, when really that wasn't the issue at all. The issue is, no, I've, I make more than $20,000, almost $30,000 less than my colleagues. And I've been trying to fix that problem for three years. And it feels like it just falls on deaf ears. And it's like, you know, 60 years after issues of pay equity were argued in the Supreme Court, like it's 2019. Let's get it together now guys and girls, you know, like that's, that's really why I felt like I wanted to make it public. Mm -hmm. Did your male colleagues, the ones who are making so much more money, did they have anything to say about it? No, they've been asked or told, I don't know if it was kindly asked or um, like definitely told um, that they are not allowed to comment publicly um, all of my colleagues actually. And I honestly, I haven't heard from any of them and I haven't heard from any of our board members. I've, I've not heard from anybody in a leadership position at the Northwest News Network. Um, and I do find that curious that they would ask reporters to stay silent. That bothers me too. <laughs> That's not really what we do for a living. Yeah. So, <laughs> Aside from just paying people more, which makes sense, um, do you think that there's a solution to these pay gaps at NPR or in general? Like, is there a way in which they could close these pay gaps while still keeping their board members happy? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> just just close the pay gap. Like, it's really not that hard. I do not think it would be that hard for our board members to sit down and say, look, all of our member stations pay dues into this one system and we use stories and get work from all of these reporters. So whether you're based in Spokane or Tri-Cities or Olympia, um, all of our reporters make the rounds across the Northwest and do the exact same jobs and we air their stories everywhere. So why not create a pool of money that we pay them out of that's equal? Um, that to me doesn't seem like it's such a hard thing. I mean, I think that the red tape and administrative work of that is a real pain. But if really that's the only thing that's like holding up, you know, closing this pay gap, then it's unfortunate that, that this is the way that it has played out. I mean, I really just think it's a lot of tough conversations at the end of the day about like, let's sit down and really look at what we're paying men versus women for the same work. And if it turns out that, there are tens of thousands of dollars in difference, then in my opinion, I feel like there's a legal obligation to address that and close that gap. Now we're going to talk to this really wonderful journalist, Claire Kane Miller, who works for the New York Times. She's an expert in the issues of uh, women in the workplace and wage gap and so on and so forth. She's done some really great writing and really interesting research on these subjects. Mm -hmm. 
This is Claire. Hi, Claire. It's Stephanie and Nick. How are you? Hey, how are you? Good. I'm just like delighted, beyond tickled to talk to you. I've been reading all of your work. So it's super fun to be able to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. I'm glad to be here. I've been at the Times for a decade. I was writing about technology for the business section before, which is actually where I first met Nick ages ago. I'm not sure if you remember. Um, A million years ago. That's right. Yes. I covered venture capital. Um, It was my first beat at the paper. This is so much better, by the way. (laughs) Don't you think? I I have to admit, I agree. I always wanted to write about gender. um, And it's sort of funny. I used to pitch gender stories all the time. And editors would say, well, I'm not sure that's a whole beat, you know, maybe just do a story on gender and technology. And so I would do, you know, a gender and tech story every so often. And then, um, and then finally, it became clear that gender was not only enough for a beat, but, you know, now we have several people at the paper covering huge beat, and it's hugely important. And um, when David Leonhardt started The Upshot, which is based um, on economics and policy, we thought that looking at gender through that lens was a perfect fit. Awesome. Very cool. So can you sort of help set up the argument for us? Just tell us where we're at in terms of the data of pay equity, where we maybe were um, before women sort of started participating in the workforce and where we are today. Sure. Well, overall, women make about 80 cents for every dollar that men make. um, But that's just sort of median pay for men and women. That's not comparing Um, people who do the same jobs or the number of hours they work within occupations. The pay gap varies Um, at the bottom at minimum wage jobs. There's very little pay gap because, you know, people are making the same wage. Uh, The largest pay gaps are in professional jobs like in medicine and law and business. And, um, And that pay gap is really substantial because those are very high paying jobs. So that means that the women who do those jobs are really missing out on a lot The pay gap has closed over the years um, as a lot of factors have sort of disappeared. Women graduate from college in greater numbers than men now. Women have moved into a lot of these high-paying occupations that they didn't used to be in at all. Um, So a lot of those factors have gone away. A huge proportion of the remaining pay gap is basically because of babies. Women who don't have children continue to make almost as much as men throughout their careers. But it's when women have children um, that the pay gap really opens and usually never closes again for the rest of their careers. So college-educated women in the United States um, make about the same as men, slightly less. There are factors like discrimination at play, slightly less, but about the same as men until about the age of 33. By the age of 45, they make 55% what college-educated men make. What happens between 33 and 45 is basically they're raising young children. Right. Interesting. So you wrote this amazing piece that I just laughed out loud about, though I could have just (laughs) as easily cried, which is the analysis you and a couple other folks did on sort of the top jobs in our economy, but also the top jobs in our government, and that there are more men named, you know, John or George than there are women in some of those roles. Can you talk about that analysis and how you got to that sort of interesting lens? Yeah, so we looked at sort of influential jobs. This is in, you know, senators, um, congresspeople, governors, but then we tried to look at other areas too. 
um, like CEOs and MacArthur Genius winners and the directors of the top grossing films of the last year and sort of across industries. And and we counted how many women it took to equal the number of men with the most common names. And we just thought it was a fun way to illustrate um, the imbalance of of people in power. The only places where there was any sort of sense of equality were um, MacArthur Genius Winners, which is a very diverse group to begin with, and the editors of women's magazines, um, which were majority women. But again, that's not really surprising. Interesting. Claire, have you done an analysis of these trends across the developed world, other countries? Is the U.S. worse, better? Do you know? So what I've been able to look at for the pay gap is, um, is sort of the other you know, rich countries, basically European countries. Yeah. And it's interesting. European countries have a lot better family policies than we do. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a baby there, you get paid leave, which we do not get in this country. And there's subsidized childcare in most countries and men take paternity leave. And there's all these things that we sort of um, wish that we had in this country to make it easier to have children and work. And what we know is that in Europe, the result is that more women work. However, women are less likely to get to management positions than they are in the United States. They're more likely there to get stuck in sort of part-time jobs and low-paying jobs and not move up. And another thing we know is um, from this data in Scandinavia that just shocked me is the pay gap I was just describing that opens up when women have children and never closes again is the same in Scandinavia as it is in the United States. And, Hmm. And so that you know, made me think, well, what is going on? They have all the policies that everyone says we need to have to achieve gender equality. Why is there still this inequality? And what it seems to be is their policies might be almost too generous. They're almost discouraging women from working. So here we get zero days off paid, you know, by the government. Maybe your workplace will offer you some, but you get zero days off paid when you have a baby. And everyone agrees that that is not very helpful. In a lot of these European countries, you get a year off. And so if you have two or three kids, like many people do, you're taking two or three entire years off during your prime career building years. And that's not that helpful either in terms of um, achieving equality in economic terms. What it really all comes down to, to me, is like men have children too. So the problem here is that women are the ones who are taking a full year off and the ones who are moving into part-time jobs and women are the ones who are giving up these things. Yes, for the sake of the family, for sure, it benefits the family. But, you know, if men did half as much when, when they had children, if they, if the way that they changed their behavior looked more like women, then these problems would sort of disappear. Right. I read something and I don't know if this was in one of your pieces or not. Um, about how in the U.S. the women's sort of participation rates seem to be stagnating, where obviously we went from very few women participating in the economy um, to you know more and more and on the increase every year to in the last 10 years, our participation rates have been stagnating. Do you have an idea of why that would be? So it's like one of the biggest mysteries for economists is why this like women sort of poured into the workforce starting in the 70s and and it kept increasing and increasing and it looked like it would never stop and then in the 90s it stopped um and one of the big reasons 
which economic analysis has pointed to this, it's very clear when you look at other countries, as Nick mentioned, is that they have these policies that we don't have. So the countries um, that have better family policy, like paid leave and flexible schedules and subsidized childcare, many, many more women work there. Like I said, they don't get to as high positions, but many more women do work. Um, their rates continue to increase while ours stalled. So that's a big reason. Another reason that economists have just sort of been starting to figure out um, ways to quantify in the last year is that being a parent, the actual job of being a parent has changed. So mothers spend, this is like the most amazing fact to me, stay-at-home mothers in the 1970s spent as much time interacting with their children as full-time working mothers do now. So motherhood, parenthood, but especially motherhood has become something where you're expected to be sort of hands-on down yeah. on the floor with your child, like doing a puzzle, teaching them all the time, hmm. where before it was something where your children were probably there, they were playing in the backyard, or maybe they were down the street. Right. But you could have a cocktail. Doing, yeah, they were doing a puzzle <laughs> by themselves, and you were like making dinner, or talking with your friends, or playing tennis, or you know, whatever it was you were doing. And, um, and this has really caught women off guard. So women say they plan to do both. Um, in surveys, like the vast, vast majority, more than 90% of young women say they plan to have jobs and be mothers in America. And not as many as that end up doing both. And it seems from um, some really interesting data, I think, that sort of the cost of motherhood is catching women off guard. And it's because motherhood actually takes more time and more effort than it used to. Yeah. And this is, I think, inextricably intertwined with our increasingly winner-take-all economic system. Like in the old days, uh, the stakes of not making it into an elite Ivy League school were relatively low. Exactly. Right? And today, in a winner-take-all economy where you're either uh, rich or poor, the risks of not overparenting are very, very high. People are in this sort of um, arms race panic to give their kids the most tutoring, the most uh, coaching, the most exposure. The you know it's just absolutely crazy what people do now um, in terms of parenting. And of course, uh, you know if you're the primary caregiver, that that can suck 24 hours a day of time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's this constant teaching. And you're exactly right. I mean, now, now you are just as likely to not make as much as your parents make as you are to make as much or more. And, you know, that's one definition of the American dream. And it's basically, it's now a crapshoot. You're as likely as not. And I think even if parents, even if parents can't consciously say, I'm enrolling my six-month-old in music class because I want them to get into a good college because a college degree has become so much more essential to making a middle-class wage. You know, even if they're not saying that, that is what's driving it. It's yeah. this anxiety of falling right. out of the class you were born into right? No. and, you know, not making it to college and not having a chance at this good job. We also know that kids who are raised in a gender equal household where they see their parents having similar roles are more likely to go off and and recreate that adult life for themselves and and so you know what we're doing is almost baking in um inequality gender inequality for another generation 
because their parents are trying to, um, you know, help them out in in terms of economic inequality. I would say there's there's another piece of this too, which is that hours at jobs have become much much longer. There's this expectation of 24/7 availability. We all yeah. know that with our iPhones and everything. And the returns to working long hours have grown so much. So if you can work 80 hours a week as an investment banker, you are going to make more than double the amount as if you took your MBA and worked 40 hours a week somewhere. Right. So there's this pressure to work these really long hours at the same time as there's this pressure to sort of spend as much time as you can with your kids, like teaching them and you know being like on the floor or playing with them. And those two things together make it very impossible, especially for, you know, educated women to go out into the labor market and use their degrees. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I think, so different from sort of that, that opt out idea that people talked about, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, which was largely debunked, which was this idea that, you know, women earned these degrees and then wanted to be stay at home moms. I, we're not talking about, you know, choosing to become a stay at home mom because, you know, your family can afford that and that is what you want to do. Certainly there are women who fall into that category, of course. But we're talking about people who simply cannot find a way to continue doing their full-time job, especially a long-hour full-time job and parent with the demands that parenting plus the demands of, you know, full-time jobs now, which are so much more than full-time. And I think there's not, you know, it's hard to find, hard to point to a developed country that has figured this out, how to have, you know, two income families with children and to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the vast majority of people have children um, by the end of their childbearing years in the United States, it's like 86%. So clearly, it's an issue that most people deal with. And I think, you know, if you look to places like Scandinavia, like I said, it can be in some cases, it can backfire a little bit for gender equality in the labor market. But the idea of recognizing that people have these responsibilities at home and, and policies that give them time to be with their children when they're super young and need it seems to make a lot of sense. So, Claire, if you were queen and could just impose your will on us, what would you do? I'm a journalist. I'm not supposed to uh, make <laughs> policy prescriptions. <laughs> I will say that... Uh, some of the most interesting research to me has found what happens when you give people control over when and where their work gets done. And when they have that kind of flexibility, the pay gap between men and women really, really shrinks. And what I think is most interesting is that, you know, a lot of professions you say you can't give control over when and where work gets done because they require this FaceTime and they require you to be at their desk and there's clients who need you to be able to pick up whenever they call. But Claudia Golden at Harvard, who's an economist there, has done some great research on this and shown that even in jobs where it looked like those jobs were too important to have that kind of flexibility, some of those jobs have changed and as a result, many more women are in them and the pay gap is closed. One example is obstetrics. So OBGYNs used to be on call 24-7 because you had no idea when your patient was going to go into labor and when they were in labor, a doctor needed to meet them at the hospital to deliver the baby. And that was the kind of job that people thought that could never be a flexible job. And then, you know, a ton of women entered obstetrics and, and changed it. So now obstetricians generally work eight-hour shifts at the hospital. And 
they deliver the babies that are born during their eight-hour shift, and then they go home, and someone else comes and delivers right. the babies that are born during the next shift. And you know, similar things have happened a, in pharmacy. And, it's and about a thousand jobs. times more sensible, by the way. Right, and <laughs> and it was like one of those jobs where people said this could never happen, and so. What I wonder is what other jobs do we think this could never happen, but it can. Like, do right. consultants at McKinsey really need to be on call 24-7, like, to answer client questions? Or could that job also change um, in a way that provides more flexibility? Also, people, you know, who work at Starbucks, like, uh, at the other side of the spectrum who are paid by the hour, um, is there a better way to schedule them so that they have more control over when and where their work gets done? Because we know that, that what people do is when some of these like huge gaps start to close. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that idea. Yeah. Okay, cool. Claire, thank you so much. It's so great to chat. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thanks. It was good to be okay, here. Talk to you guys care. later. Bye. Bye. You know, as you know, I've had this sense for a really long time after having thought about this stuff for a really long time that neoliberalism is just it's a modality of oppression but these these narrative tricks and psychological tricks they're super effective which is why they're used again yeah. and again and again and again um but they don't just take the same form in terms of oppression for me what i was reflecting on is they take the same form and the solutions being offered too so like Women are, you know, we're being taught how to be better negotiators. Yeah. And to do things like power pose and to take on mentors. Yeah. And, you know, and all of that is just treated like there aren't these sort of systemic yes. inequities. Like it's right. my personal responsibility to make my situation equal to that of right. my male counterpart. And, the, the, and that's think, not fucking uh, true. <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. just not, yeah. no power pose will make equality for women in economics possible. Yes. And right. I, it's just All the it burden make, it's is, embarrassingly yeah, bad yeah. as an argument and yeah, as yeah. a solution. And I yeah. feel the same way about Lily yeah, Ledbetter. Leaning in. Yeah, leaning in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. what was, what's her name? Uh, Cheryl yeah, if Sandberg. you just lean in, yeah. it will all be good. Right. I just, yeah. I hate Especially that Especially if shit. you went to Harvard. Right. Right. <laughs> but so the solutions are all these individual yeah. solutions that women themselves should yeah. take on to, yeah. to gain their rightful place and equal participation and right. that's just not those solutions are just not going to get us there yes and i feel the same way about democrats who tout lily ledbetter yeah i mean lily ledbetter is necessary policy that extends the litigation opportunity for women who are not receiving the right. same wages as their male counterparts in the workforce but it is so fucking inadequate yeah. as a solution yes to you know receiving 80 percent of the wealth that right. men are are earning and, and getting. I just, I just hate it. Yes. So I think what we heard from Professor Julie Nelson and certainly from uh, writer Claire Kane Miller is that there are lots of policy things that we can do. Wage transparency is part of that. Stronger childcare laws for sure. Um, but we can also do things like raising the minimum wage. You know, women represent 56% of minimum wage workers. We can adjust the overtime threshold. Women are the ones overwhelmingly who occupy those salary level jobs that today aren't covered by our current overtime threshold. And overtime would also do important things for that family dynamic that Claire especially talked about, giving men and women the opportunity to choose what they do with their free time yeah. when you can expect a 40-hour work week. 
So those are the things we can do to more fully include women in the economy, but why should we take those steps, Nick? Yeah, so I think the answer to that question is super simple, that in an economic circumstance where so much wealth is concentrated at the top and in the profits of big corporations, and there has been such a long, um, so much wage wage stagnation uh, up and down, the economy, anything we do to pay ordinary folks more, but men or women, the better it will be for the economy. And I see no downside to moving super aggressively to make sure that women are treated fairly and equally in the economy. Paying women more will unambiguously not just improve their lives, but improve the dynamism in the economy as a whole. It, it won't just uh, allow them to consume more, but but also to invest more in themselves and in their families. And you know that you know uh, again one of one of our fundamental economic principles is that inclusion creates growth. That the more fully we include people robustly in the economy, the better the economy will do overall. And so, you know, I just think that it's not just that we should do it for moral reasons. Uh, it just seems to me obvious that, that, that there are overwhelming practical reasons to, to, to address these problems. So, yeah, do more. <laughs> So in the next episode, we're going to talk to our friend Heather McGee about whether morality and economics have anything to do with one another. So Nick, uh, podcast listener Trevin Barker from San Francisco sent us an email with a question. Could you please invest some time talking about gentrification, urban displacement, and the concentration of wealth and commerce in our big cities? What's the real cause of all these businesses clustering together as they do? This can't be good for our economy, can it? With companies like Uber, Lyft, Slack, Airbnb, etc. about to go public here, the situation seems like it will only grow more untenable over time. I know it's not only happening here, but I think it's probably a prime example of the phenomena. What can we do about it? As best as I can tell, this is becoming a major cause of rising inequality in urban areas. Yeah, and Trevin, thanks for the question, and it's a fantastic one, and it's really worth addressing we should probably do a whole episode about this. In we fact, have, coming up, yeah. we're doing an episode <laughs> on, on spatial, spatial inequality. inequality. So stay tuned, Trevin, in a yeah. couple weeks. Yeah, but uh, briefly, the underlying dynamics of urbanization and concentrating wealth and power in cities. And by the way, this is a thing that is happening in every country in the world at different rates of speed, but de and definitely if you live in San Francisco, California, you are at ground <laughs> zero for this phenomena, um, is that once you understand prosperity in human societies being the accumulation of solutions to human problems, and those problems in turn, the, the solutions rather, in turn being the product of increasing amounts of innovation, uh, and once you understand where innovation comes from in a modern way, as not as this eureka moment of an individual, but rather uh, the collective uh, product 
of huge amounts of diversity and density working together, then you can quite clearly see why cities are where everything happens. And in fact, this phenomena is quantified and well-documented. You can read uh, Jeff West's book, Scale, if you really want to understand the dynamics of this super well. But basically, every time you double the population of a place, the amount of innovation that takes place in that place goes up by a factor of 1.15 times. And what that means is that big places aren't different in degree, they're different in kind, really, from very, very small places, because it's not, just to be clear, it's not the amount of innovation in the place that goes up 1.15 times, it goes up 1.15 times per person who lives in that place. So the amount of innovation that takes place in a big city is two or three times as much per person as a small place. And so what that means is that if you're competing in innovation and economy and a technological economy, the only place where you can realistically do that innovation is in highly diverse, highly dense places like cities. And the more adjacent technologies there are in a place, the easier it is to do that innovation. The costs to innovate go down dramatically because you have people who have adjacent skills. And so there is this increasing returns effect, which is happening throughout our economy, which is sucking all of both the best people but, and the best ideas out of the country and into the cities. And, and this is creating increasing amounts of inequality and in particular spatial inequality, right, which is exacerbating the political problems that we already had. So, so I think the, the shorter answer to your question, Trevin, is uh, no, there's nothing we can do about this uh, because this, this is the natural agglomeration effect of the knowledge economy. Yeah. And yes, there's huge inequality being created by this, but that is actually something we can do something about. Correct. And we should, in fact, certainly in the United States in particular, have a really forceful policy for both trying to limit the amount of concentration that we have in industries to spread companies around geographically, but also we should affirmatively try, even if it doesn't make that much sense economically in the most primitive way, to build out capabilities in non-urban areas, we should build hospitals, we should build universities, we should do all sorts of things to spread prosperity around. Now, you can't see this. I'm scrunching up my face. Yeah, Goldie, <laughs> Goldie, Goldie thinks that we should let uh, the non-urban areas just go to rot, but I, I disagree. No, no, no. <laughs> no, um, we, we have to find a way to, f to include everybody I, in the And economy. I think the way to include everybody is, uh, one, we need housing policy that allows uh, people to move to the cities to take advantage oh, of the sure. opportunities yeah. that are here. And we need to... Uh, recycle the wealth that's created in the cities throughout the rest of the economy right. so that, you know, people can have a dignified middle-class life uh, in rural America. Too. Right, for sure. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. 
As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.